I'm racing with Bruno. And I truly believe that winning starts with you. Welcome to our Racing with Bruno with the Works podcast. And welcome to the 19th of July Racing with Bruno with the Works podcast. We're going to have a couple of little different things from now uh, starting today. Uh, we've got a, a cycle of three other handicappers. They're all very good tournament players, and uh, and they're just a, a students of the game. And the first one that I'm going to have on today is Mr. Pete Renato. I've uh, known him for a long time. Uh, we work together at Grade 1 Racing. Uh, we're partners in horses. Pete, welcome to the With the Works podcast. Thanks, Bruno. Glad to be here. Um, we're going to go through a number of topics tonight. What we're really going to get into some handicapping ideas and thoughts and we're going to kind of pick your brain about uh handicapping and uh first of all let's go through some news um boy what a what a weekend and uh that we had um and from a different perspectives let's start off with the haskell um the mammoth what a dramatic finish to that race luckily everybody's okay midnight bourbon's okay uh, Paco's okay. Uh, Doug O'Neill and and Hot Red Charlie and Flavian Pratt were taken down. Pete, what was your reaction to that particular dramatic set of events? I know a lot of people were blaming the no whip rule. I don't know enough about the circumstances of being a rider, whether that really made a difference in that case. Uh, I just hope I wasn't a jinx because right before the race, I was in an elevator going down to the paddock with Ron Winchell and Steve Asmussen. Um, and it was unfortunate for them. I think they thought they had a big chance in that race. Um, you know, and even uh, under the circumstances of disqualification, you know, th- that the Asmussen was definitely going to run third. And when you think about it from an owner perspective, you know, it's good that the horse is well and Paco is well, but that was a pretty big check to lose out on by uh, being interfered in that way. And the, the disqualification doesn't put that hundred thousand dollars in their pocket, but just something people don't think about. Yeah. I, um, I thought the disqualification was, uh, just, um, but I also felt that mandaloon drifting out off the inside had a part in that old chain of um now did Flavian Pratt move over to meet Mandaloon and to give his horse the eye to eye test down the lane possibly uh he just a, a really good ex former uh a former jockey friend of mine and who gets our horses ready Rudy Del Judas was telling me that he felt that it was Flavian Pratt moving over to try to get eye to eye with Mandaloon, and he miscalculated how fast out the back end Midnight Bourbon was going, which was accelerated by Mandaloon coming out. So it was just an unfortunate chain of events. Thank God everybody's okay. Uh, speaking of Stephen Asperson, uh he moves within 14 of the record. Um, uh, for, uh, here in, the, in, in North America. What an achievement by this man. And he's still a relatively very young trainer, so to speak. 
Yeah, what's incredible about Asmussen is I think more than anyone else, he plays the game at every level. You know, he can have a $5,000 claimer at Lone Star and have grade one horses winning Breeders' Cup races. And to get that variety of effectiveness through the game is incredible. I, I met with Ron Winchell back when he had Pyro because I was out in Vegas and he was a Vegas guy. He owned some pubs out there. And we talked about, you know, what he looks for in trainers. And, and, you know, Ron started to really get some good horses. It started with his father's legacy. And he swore that Asmussen was just overall better than everyone else. He said he can just name 10, 11 horses at any given time. Steve knew last time they worked, how they worked, what the time was, who was on them. He's just, he's just a machine. He runs a very strong operation. He's a likable guy. And uh, he's gotten some tremendous results. And what's interesting, he puts his own money in it. He claims a lot of horses himself to run. Exactly, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's not like he's just bringing, you know, trainers and bringing big money in and doing it that way. And so, I think that's a great model. I, I did that recently twice with Norm, Cassie. And when, when a trainer wants to partner up and write a check and be part of it and take some financial risk, that's always a very good sign. I think it, it gives you some confidence that when you're picking horses to claim, that you're you're seeing things that are valuable, and any trainer that does that is, is uh, very positive in my eyes. I had um, in 2011 or 2012, I had a horse with Steve, and I went over to the barn, and I was kind of in awe of being at the barn, and I was going down the shed row, and it was one star after another, and all of a sudden I hear a voice, "Come here, Bruno, get over here, get in the car," and I'm thinking, "Oh no, what did I do?" He's taken out. He's going to take me somewhere out in the bowels of Churchill and bury my body, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I get in the car and he was so much fun to talk to. Um, we talked about sales. The one thing about Steve, I've learned that if you want to have a great conversation with him, you don't ask him about his horses. Um, you know, you just talk about and I'll, I'll tell you even another story. We had a horse named Dubai Bob. And we had, I, we thought highly of him. He, you know, we, he was a forestry out of an unbridled song mare. Um, and, but he kept stopping and we're in the, in his tack room and his assistants there, um, Katie Gensler's husband was, it was the assistant, um, Steve. And the assistant said, I think it's something with the throat. And I looked at him, I, I said, no, I think you need to start from behind and move forward. And then I kind of caught myself like, oh, what did you just say in front of Steve, right? He didn't say anything. But three days later, he writes me a text. You were right. It's his stifle. He goes, I'm sending him to, to down to Keeneland. At that time, it was synthetic. Might be better for him to, um, to, to handle it. Um, and handle with that stifle. And it really kind of changed my outlook of him because he, he actually heard me. Instead of saying like a lot of trainers do, what do these guys know, right? right. He's, you know, Norm's that way too. Norm's really, really affable that way. He'll listen to your opinion. Um, in fact... If you, you owned a piece of braggadocio that you lost for 100000 first time out. And I had spoken to you and him 
that when I saw his walk-up videos and his two-year-old videos, I thought he was really loose behind. And I thought that possibly as a baby, he had issues in the stifles or up near, you know, up in the big bones in the hocks, but not the hocks. It was either the stifles or up in the, in the, in the, in the world bone area in his high end. And I, after the horse got claimed, Norm said, Bruno, you were right. He goes, I never really paid much attention, but when I, when, when he came out of his stall the morning of the race, he was kind of almost locking up behind. He had some issue behind and locking up behind is in the stifle area. And it's almost like when your knee catches, right? Um, and then when you finally don't catch it, there's a pain to it. So, um, you know, it's it just, I think the good trainers are good listeners too. And what Steve has done is absolutely fantastic. I will say they're one of my favorite barns. I love Scott Blasey to death. You know, um, he can be loud and obnoxious, but what a good horseman he is. And Steve and him have got a great, great relationship and, and it shows. Now, let's go on to something else. Um, Malathat is leads to probable uh, leads to probables for eight great estates coming up in the next couple of weeks. So keep a lookout for Malathat back in the entries. Boy, she doesn't put back to back races, does she? Very often, not frequently. The way she's built, I can see why. Um, it's, when she's right, she's when she's in a race, she's you know impeccable. Um, that's another thing. Um, one more thing we want to talk about is Del Mar. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to play Del Mar or watch Del Mar this weekend. I thought they outdid Saratoga. Listen, the prices were great. Uh, they, they had very big fields, competitive races. You had low-profile trainers winning races, complicated sequences. You know, it's everything you look for to try to make scores. It was, you know, the the jackpot six, I think, was hit. Uh, I don't know, it was Saturday. Um, th those are those are great. That's a great way to start the weekend. I think they still have issues with population. You know, th the thought of Del Mar only running three days a week is concerning. But the ship to win program should bring some more bodies over to the track. Uh, but it's a you know, it's it's a great meet to bet for sure. One thing that this weekend was evident was. Something that we had discussed on the on the Wednesday Zoom that we do for free. And I think you attended. And we talked about how the first weekend of Del Mar, the tide was at its highest point midway through the card. And I have I have done I have basically handled Del Mar since the mid nineteen eighties. And clocking since 1992 and i can tell you without a shadow of a doubt in my mind that those tides have a lot to do with the way the track plays and i outlined it way back in 2017 for the breeders cup i remember sitting on the balcony in moonlight beach the morning of the friday races and riding a blog that went out to all customers and all people that ever signed up 
for newsletters. It was uh, like 5,000 people. And I went step by step on why I thought the track would play to the outside for the Breeders' Cup Friday, uh, Friday morning. Um, and having in mind that that Wednesday and Thursday at Del Mar, the inside speed just dominated. Well, what happened was that that week, the lowest tide was uh, the lowest part of the tide was all the way out right during the card, meaning that the track was really bone dry. So speed was going over it and nobody was passing anybody. However, I knew that the Friday morning, the tide was going to be very high. It was going to be like that Friday morning um, of the Breeders' Cup. I think it was seven feet above zero, seven feet above normal tide level. So I knew that there was some extraordinary circumstances there. And sure enough, we played it to the outside with outside posts, and we did very well. Both days that weekend in 2017 was absolutely play, was absolutely live to horses rallying wide. So I, I, know, I know that track. I know every little tendency of how that track plays. So going into opening weekend, I made a point to say to everybody on the Zooms, outside posts, outside draws. And we couldn't have drawn it up better with X's and O's. And outside posts were really doing well. Outside horses coming around four or five wide were winning. And I capitalized on quite a few of them. The frustrating part was getting my Delmar guy to get it. So if you like the two and you like the eight, you put the eight on top. If you like the two, if you like the four and you like the seven, you put the seven on top. And that kind of got a little lost. Um, and that was very frustrating for me, but playing that angle worked and we came up with some prices. I think we had a four-star horse that, uh, four-star worker that paid 18, 18 to one on Friday night. Um, now this weekend, Pete coming up, the tide is at the lowest time at around three o'clock in the afternoon. So. Track is either going to play fair or it's going to play to the inside. Meaning now, if you like the two and you like the 10, you put the two on top. And you pay close attention to the one, three, four, and five. Horses that are going to get trips towards the inside. When that track has got a little moisture in it, it plays to the outside. When it's got no moisture in it, it's dry, plays to the inside. So I'm very interested to see how to play that this weekend. Now, the following weekend, in two weeks, the tide is high during the weekend again. So, and, and I used to see this when every year I went down to Del Mar, stayed at Del Mar the whole entire season, clocked, played the horses, and you could just chart it by the tides how that track was going to play. And you could be, you could make a lot of money doing that. You just have to be a believer that the tides do affect the, the track, um, which a lot of it's really hard to get some people to believe it.
not super useful information. No, I think the the thing that that you know related to the tide and related to bias in general. If you're a guy like me who's primarily playing pick fives and pick sixes, I think you can use the information to your advantage. But the reality is, you only need to be wrong once. You're not cashing, you know. So what I try to do early on in the meet, where these things are being evaluated, is try to stay away from the multi-race bets a little bit. And really focus on picking a couple of spots where that information gives you a significant edge. Well, you know what I did this weekend? I played exactus. Like, for example, on Sunday in the eighth race, we liked the favorite, the two, Koalina. And we had the seven who was 35 to one in the second spot. So what I did is I hammered the exacta two seven, but I came back with a stronger seven two. They ran two seven. This exacta paid $88 for two. So you play that thing. Let's say you play that thing 30 times. That's that'll make you some money to play for a week or so. Um, there was quite a few little. Uh, there was a first time starter earlier in the card. that was 30 to one from the seven hole. And I took a shot at him underneath. I had the favorite was the eight. Uh, the horse that we liked was the eight. So I played a little. I played a pretty strong exact eight seven. However, and I used about three other horses that we had on the sheet. However, I came back and said, "Look, I can't have this thirty to one beat me." So I doubled it up and put a twenty five dollar exacta. You know, that thing came back around seventy dollars. So by playing race to race, you can really do really really well, and hit some big big numbers that you can fuel. That then you can play those multi wagers. And it doesn't hurt your bankroll. Yeah, you had a similar experience on opening day at Saratoga in the, uh, I think it was the first maiden race with the Ed Barker horse was about 25, 30 to one. Right. Who you thought was racy based on the sale videos or the walking videos. And I remember I, I played a small multi-race ticket uh, and I got knocked out of that sequence, but I made a lot of money on that race, even though he ran second with the chalk, same situation. Exactly paid very strong. Trifecta paid very strong. Uh, so, all, yeah, all it takes is one price like that, and you play it right, you're going to cash. And, 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 and let's talk about two different parts of that, that statement you made. Number one, a lot of chalk players would not have played it because they wouldn't have said, I can't play the chalk on top. But they don't realize that, you know, you can't play chalk on chalk, but you can play chalk to a 25-to-1 shot. Absolutely. You know, nowadays, with Saratoga and Delmar meet, you know, so many people are reading the same clocker reports, the same handicappers. And in that particular race, it became widely known that the first timer from Tom Amos outworked the Tom Amos that was in the stakes the same day. So with a couple other key scratches in that race, that horse was taking significant money. And for most people, they might have looked at that race as a race that lacked value. But when you take the Ed Barker horse and – you throw out, I think it was an Asmussen who was the nine it was in the race. Speedometer. Yeah, we, who, who we, was super rank and having issues his, her, his or her first time out. Uh, it was a logical spot to turn a, a, a favorite or a second choice into a good payday. Well, we, we talked about that on the, uh, on, on the Zoom. And I, and I showed the video of Speedometer. And I, and, I, and I made the comments that Steve trained her very, very lightly going into her debut because of exactly what we were saying. She wasn't mentally, she was too fragile mentally. 
she wanted to lug in and everything. And he didn't want to put her way over the top by trying to drill her. What it was is that she's just not mentally all there. And we knew that. And the horse got bet down a nine to five or eight to five. I mean, I didn't even use her on a ticket. Speaking of that, as of late, and I, I talk to you at least once a day, I do notes off all the videos I have from the Keeneland yearling sale, two-year-old in training sales. I have walking videos on a lot of horses. And it has proven to be absolutely a fantastic tool because I feel that I have a really good handle on what a horse should look like. And you know that. You have trusted me in putting money into us buying horses. And um, I'd have to recall recall the story. I called you uh, about a month ago about a filly. I think it was around the 28th of June that I had watched a video of from the Leah Giamatti barn, a first-time starter, two-year-old by a stern. And I said, Pete, you got to play this. This filly's going to be a big price, but she's a pretty big moving filly, and I really like her. I think she can run. And boy, did she run. She paid, what, 28 to 1? And the exacto with the other horse I liked from the walking videos paid, like, what, $150 for one? Yeah, she blew up a lot of tickets that day for sure. You know, there were high-profile yeah. trainers in the race, and she was easily overlooked. And On not- Sunday. And yeah, and on Sunday, I'll give you another one. Uh, we had a video. I had a video, walking video, of the uh, uh, Mischief Mogul. The Pletcher first time started was 8-5 to five in a short field in the first race on Sunday. And, again, I watched that, that, that walking video. And, obviously, that horse has an issue, had an issue with a left hind hawk, the way he moved. And the way, he, the way they handled him. So that horse had gone through the Keeneland sale and been an RNA, had gone through a two-year-old sale and been an RNA. RNA means reserve, not achieved, meaning that let's say Pete has a horse in, 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 a, uh, in a sale and he sets the, the reserve. So if the horse goes over that reserve, let's say Pete puts uh, a 190 reserve or 199 reserve on a horse. That means if it goes for one ninety nine or two two hundred thousand, it sells. If it doesn't, you get it back. Well, this filly failed to meet a reserve each and every single time. Actually, it might have been a colt. Um, and there's reasons for that. There's something wrong with the horse. And it was also entered in facing Tipton, Maryland, and they scratched it out. Knowing that. That, that there's issue there and the way the horse walked and moved, it wasn't a horse that I believed was going to be able to, to run at its full potential in a race. Um, it was a lemon at the sale. They couldn't sell it. So, and, and she was bet down to eight to five or six to five or whatever she was, a favorite in the first on, um, on Sunday and up the track, finished third. She, you know, so you, when, when I write those comments and the way I do is I put them in our auction section, which shows up in your workout report right underneath the works. And I have found those to be, for me, I can go to the windows on a first time starter by looking at the way they look confidently. Um, I don't feel as confident when I don't get to see a video on a horse and I haven't got to see him move. That's very important. But, uh, that's another part of the, the, the workout report that I don't think anybody else has. I know nobody else has. 
No, Najir Mahdi horse is a great example. Like I said earlier, this time of year, everyone's buying a Del Mar workout report or a Saratoga workout report that's playing at a serious level. So you have players looking at the same horses, get the same BBs and the same B pluses, and the values disappearing. The the opportunities really coming in a case where a horse is training on a farm somewhere, or maybe training at Belmont for a Saratoga start, and there's no one watching that workout, and that workout's not on any video. And your only option is either relying upon the connections that you think are prolific with firsters, or the way that you're looking at it. And let, let the Giamatti horse was in a race. I think there was a, a two, one or two heavily bet Clements in there. You know, it was horse. a Chad Brown as well. Yeah, it was so straight up behind. She was a, and it was an intermission filly. She was so straight up behind. She had been R and A for fifty seven thousand. How I mean that, that to me when you are in an into mischief R and A's for fifty seven thousand, there's a major problem there. The big hole, and then she went over to the OBS and breezed in ten flat. But she was so straight up behind Bill, she jackrabbited, and those kind of horses can't carry their speed very long because there's no extension. It's just a real short, quick stride. Maybe turf at five furlongs would be, you know, something they would look at. But but understanding the way the horses are built and the way they move and the way they're going to be able to run, the more I see, the more I'm learning on how to assess for the races. Um, and um, I, I think that's one of the, our strengths. So if I, get, if I get to see them work and I like the way they work and I've got a video that shows me. See, at Saratoga, you've got all these clockers out there. It's like in Florida. And they all agree on the same horse. So if, if, if you got something on that horse that's negative and they're all on that horse, they're going to overbet that horse and you're going to be able to jump in and, and nail something at a price. That's the key to Saratoga. Now, speaking about the key to Saratoga, the weather. The weather this weekend was a pain in my butt because what I had to do Saturday and Sunday is project how to handicap those races. So for Saturday, I had projected the handicap for an off track. What happened, the rain somehow didn't materialize. And we had to change the entire product to reflect that. On Sunday, I knew the rain was there. So now I had the handicap for an off the turf and predict scratches. I got it pretty close. We also hit the early pick five with it. Um, but Saratoga, I think with the current, um, with the current issues with the climate, um, I think we're going to get a very wet Saratoga. It's supposed to be raining all week next week, most of the week. I think Wednesday is going to have some rain. Thursday and Friday are going to be okay. And then the weekend again more. I think we're going to get a lot of that. So we have been able now that I can change the product. So if anybody hasn't seen that yet, we now I can change the product. I can change the surfaces. I can redo everything and reflect with our handicapping factors, the new factors on dirt um, and and changing the pace figs for the dirt. 
So, so Pete, you had a chance to look at it. I, I think it's a great addition to the product because it gives you something to work with on days that they go from, from turf to off turf. Yeah, correct. And that's a challenge really for you or any, anyone that's publishing a product when you just have this uncertainty even an hour or half hour before the race card is going to begin. You know, you're publishing something the night before. Guys are buying it. They're doing their handicapping. The better has the opportunity to make those adjustments if they're sitting by a TV. But you as the person selling the content, it doesn't always have the flexibility. But by giving those options and, and, and giving the picks under both scenarios, it's definitely helpful. It, it reminds me of a, a, a bad bad beat I had about a year ago. I was playing Astronic Pick 5, and I'm in general very much – on the sidelines when there's sloppy tracks. I just, I just find because of value or my way of handicapping, it's not for me. So almost any time I see a wet surface, I'm going to skip that card and go elsewhere. I had a situation with Astronic 5 where they're, they're about to load. I think it was at Laurel, and then the rain came down at Gulfstream. And I canceled my ticket and it paid $16,000. So, oh, yeah, but it happens, you know, but you, you have to stay flexible, you know, either, either keep an eye on, I don't know if you tweet updates or you just email out the updates, but keeping an eye on that's key. And if you're like me, where you don't always feel comfortable with the uncertainty of the surface, you know, there's enough uncertainties in this game uh, to have to especially pick, pick fives, pick sixes, not knowing how things are going to be in the third leg or the fourth leg, you know, maybe the better approach is to stick to race by race or look at a different card. Uh, I tend to personally play more Delmore than Saratoga because I know it's going to be dry almost every day on that meet. Um, but, you know, guys love Saratoga and the classiness of the races and what works for them might be different for you. Well, the, the biggest challenge for me was, yeah, we could change the product. That's not a problem. However, to redistribute the product was a problem because I did not have the ability of pulling up everybody that had it, that got it off the subscriber site or with the Bruno with the works.com and everybody. And, and it would take me a lot of work to get all the people that bought it on racing with Bruno single issue out. So what we've done is I've been able now with the new site at Wix and, and also with some help, we developed some programming that I can pull Pete Renato out of, out of um, the Bruno with the work site and say, hey, you know, Pete downloaded in the, the first issue. He needs to get an updated issue. So having the ability to do that now um, and also getting people to sign up for the newsletter so I can communicate with them, it's been, parent, it's been an unbelievable uh, experience and getting a product to people that is going to be represented on the track to me is of paramount importance. And, um, we've been, we were able to do it this past weekend. Um, it is a lot of work to redo, but I, um, I enjoy getting it out to people that they can play because they have the right information in front of them. Now, speaking about information, Pete, um, you and I talk a lot about our new Zeta figs, our pace figs and final fraction figs. And I am so over the, over the top, over the moon on their, art, their performance. But people can say, well, Bruno, you know, they're Bruno's figs. So, you know, he's going to say good things about them. 
you and I talked, and you said something the other day that made a that that really uh, made me kind of uh, really happy. Maybe you can share it. We were talking about the double factors. Maybe you can share with whatever with the listeners what you think. Yeah, I don't I don't remember if it was Thursday or Friday. I think it was Friday, and it was a day I had I had work. I had a relative in town. I really didn't have time to play to focus at all. So I, I skimmed your sheet, and I know you've been pushing me to look at the Zeta figs. And in the first race, I think it was the first time I saw this, the horse had the top pace Zeta fig and the top closing fig, which is very, very rare. And normally the horse would be one to nine. And so I go to the form, and the horse was consistently hanging. Um, I think a lot of seconds and thirds wasn't by any means a winner. And I, I called you and I said, just FYI, you have a horse in the first race that has the top pace and top closing fig. I go, I don't have real time to look at the whole card, but I'm just going to bet this horse just off that factor alone. And I didn't, honestly, I didn't even see the race. I just went back and I saw the money in my account. So it worked out in the end, but that was a, a tremendous angle. And I did a study on the double factors, and the double factors are very – I call those double factors, where you have a top three um, pace fig and a top three final fraction. And uh, the percentages are – like, for example, on the main track at Santa Anita, the double factor was – and even Belmont was similar – um, out of the 70% of the races were won by horses with a single factor. Uh, however, out of those 70% of the races, 45% of them, two factors. So it, it's a very strong handicapping factor. Now I have to explain something. When you talk about pace figures and you talk about, you know, just pace figures, people automatically think you saying that horse is going to be on the lead. That's incorrect. What that pace figure shows is the horse can be comfortable within the pace of today's race in comparison to his competition. Um, It's got nothing to do with the par with the race. It's got to do with the competition around them. So if that horse is a one, two, or three pace figure, it is it, that horse has a really strong um, advantage over the rest of the competition, and and but it does not mean that the horse is going to be on the lead. It just says the pace is favorable for this horse. Now on the turf, the FF ones and FF twos really do really well, and the biggest challenge of that is getting certain analysts to to see it. And because, see, Pete, I believe past performances that you read, they lie to you. You see a horse that is on the lead and gets beat by three, you say, stop, right? Our figs tell us something different. Because within the scope of the day's race, that horse didn't stop last time out. So it, it, it fits in this race. And that's what you're talking about. Um, it's a tool, but it works. Um, I was watching Colonial Downs today. I don't know if you watched it at, at all on Monday. And it was just bombs away. But a lot of horses 
that I saw had an F1 or F2. The pace was good for them. It fit for them. So whether it's turf or dirt, how a horse fits into the pace is a part of the puzzle. But on the turf, you have to also, also have to look at how fast. If they're one, two, three fast finishers, you got to use them somewhere, somehow. And that was the problem I was having this whole weekend is that, like I said, certain analysts just would toss horses that were FF1 or FF2 on the turf. They would toss them because they didn't look right on the past performances. Well, the past performances unequivocally lie to you because they show you something that, that, does not, that you interpret wrong. And, and that's why I love those figures. I think they're a great product. You know, uh, loose leaders on the turf or even horses and maybe a two-horse duel that just keep going, those horses become separators a lot in, in multi-race wagers. You know, you find sometimes that on paper it looks like you have four or five speeds and you're throwing them all out and taking all the closures and the closures are either aren't getting the trip or the ones in the lead just fit from a pace perspective based on their past races and your Zeta figs will show that and they just keep going. Uh, and that happens a lot. Uh, I, I'm definitely guilty of tossing those types at Gulfstream and they beat me all the time, uh, but it's something you really have and to look at. Price. Absolutely. And they pay well. Yeah. They always pay well. And, and the interesting part about it is, um, a lot of times what I've, I've had to have come to Jesus meetings was the analyst likes a horse that has absolutely no factors. And what I mean by that, it doesn't have any top deltas. It doesn't have any pace or final fractions, nothing. And they use that horse over an FF1 or an FF2. Nine out of ten times, you're gonna get you're gonna get bitten by the FF1 or FF2, and then you get that phone call. You know, so it is not as simple as just using them, but having a mindset to understand that what you're seeing on the past performances is not an accurate assessment of how that horse ran that day. Um. I have had, I'll give you another great example. There was a horse that Brendan Walsh has, I believe the name of the horse is Look Me Over. Um, it was originally a Michael Matz. And Look Me Over was making its first start for, um, uh, for Brendan Walsh at Churchill. And I'm going to give you the info in a minute uh, right now as I'm pulling it up. Uh, it was a a horse that had not raced since March 26th at Gulfstream from Michael Matz had finished third. He had finished third, but it was, I think, had one horse beat down the backside. Now it moved over to Brendan Walsh, and it was entered on June 6th in a main special with Martin Garcia on board. And I know one thing. Michael Matz does not want his horses to show speed. 
He takes all the speed out of his horses and teaches them how to come from the back of the pack. That's just, that's just what Michael Matz does. So now here you got Brandon Walsh who lets those horses be who they are. I look on, I look on the sh- on on the pace figures, and Pete, he was in F two. I mean, here's a horse that was ninth, it was eleventh, like nine lengths back in that race, but was an F two. Why? When I went back and looked at the race, there was no pace in the race. None. Right. So what happens? Horse goes off at. Nine to two. Breaks well. Walsh lets it do what it wants to do. Shows speed. Opens up down the backside and wins by nine. Yeah, I just pulled it up. Yeah, it's look me over. Was That's correct. That was the horse. And that was uh, June 6th at Churchill. Yes. And one by, I think, six or nine lengths. One of the uh, Eight by eight lengths. And, okay. uh, and ran, ran, ran the best figure she ever wrote. She ever ran. But what happened was... It was a product that I looked at that and understanding what Michael, Michael Matz trains in the man's of his horses, understanding what Brendan Walsh does and understanding that there was no pace in the race. And the horse actually had a front running pace figure. Boom. I think the horse was six to one on the board when they went into the gate and when they crossed the wire it was nine to two. But that's exactly what I was talking about. That sometimes when you get a horse that you go, how does this horse on F2? He doesn't have any speed. Well, maybe the field is not fast. And that's another key to know. You realize, hey, you know what? I look on fast performance. It looks like there's speed. But you know what? If, if this horse is an F1 or F2, that means there's no speed in the race. So it, it's a very interesting way of looking at things. And, and your experience as, as a handicapper can really come forward on it. Um, look me over his cut came back and allowance none winners other than and ran third at Ellis on July 1st. And it was an F2 at that in that race, too. Yeah, that so, was a sloppy, sloppy race off the turf. So oh, I was really, it? Okay. Yeah, so I don't really look too much at that one. Okay, okay. So, um, but that's a really interesting, interesting way of looking at the races, and 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 I find that some people want to argue with them. And what I've learned is I've had to reshape the way I think my handicapping. And a lot of handicappers can't reshape their thinking. They still believe in things that were being talked about in 1970. So a lot of guys, I always say, they handicap like it's 1999. You know, they 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 subscribe to the Dead Rail Society. You know, they subscribe to the Golden Rail Cult. Um, and, and they, and he got by figures. I heard one of the most ridiculous statements made the other day where, you know, a, a gentleman said this horse beat, uh, when he won the next out winner, the, then the second place horse came back to win, but he ran three points slower on the buyer. Well, I thought about it for a minute and that is a mile. That means the horse ran a length and a half slower about a length slower the next time out. That's negligible. That could be a wide trip. That could be a slow pace. That could be a lot of different things. So people handicap with these beliefs that they have information, especially using figures like the buyers, and they really don't. 
Yeah, and a lot of it's really value, you know. But everyone's looking at the buyers. A lot of people are looking at the Ragazin or Thorograph. Everyone's looking at the same workout reports. The value is just getting sucked out of these races on a weekly basis because of the availability of information. My ex-father-in-law used to go to Penn National every night. And he, and this is, he's talking about 30, 40 years ago. And he said, there used to be some guy walk around with a notebook every day. And everyone would be wondering why this guy walked around with a notebook. And, you know, he had made his own figs. He had his own notes in every race. And this guy was consistently winning, you know. And, you know, in this day and age, it's just all out there. It's all available, especially use a lot of people using the same computer software. You know, I, I think Trip Notes Pro is a, good, is a good product, but, you know, it's getting popular. So guys are finding the bad trip horses. They don't even have to watch the replays anymore. So this next level analysis, this analysis that requires a little bit more thought, a little bit more creativity, that's where you're going to find the value. And it only really takes one or two in a sequence to really make something pay a lot. You know, I had a similar experience I hit a big cross-country five last year where there was two Kelly Breen horses in a race, and one was buyer superior than the other, but the race happened to be a mile and three-eighths, and the, the lesser buyer horse just showed that even though he was inferior from a figure perspective, the length of that race was conducive to his pedigree. And I completely tossed the other, which was, I think, two or three to one. And the one I used was a big number, and he made that ticket pay a lot of money. Um, so sometimes you got to dig deep. I think some people, it's just the way they think. Some people don't put the time in. Some people don't have the time to put in. But if you're really looking to make next-level scores, turn a 80 or $100 pick five ticket into 20, 30, 40, 50,000, the traditional ways of looking at it are not going to work for you. You can get lucky and find them now and again, but to hit them consistently, you've got to find an edge that other players are not finding. And when you find that edge, you have to be very aggressive in using it. And that's the thing that I really go after at Bruno, uh, at, at racing with Bruno and Bruno at the works is the ability. And listen, you and I go way back to the late Steve Davidowitz in grade one racing. We started to do a lot of those things with that publication. Um, uh, the Four Star Works, uh, the origin, um, started before that, but we were implemented it and at Grade One Racing, and um, a lot of that stuff. It's funny, you know, because you know when when Steve approached me and I had not met you yet, um, I got our our webmaster that I that I already had set up to look at a site for me. I had the webmaster, we had the, the clockers, we had everything. So as far as coming up with innovative ways of doing things, you know, I came up with the deltas. The reason the deltas are a superior figure is because we use track class as a method of developing a number. You cannot look at a race at Belterra Park that ran in 110 and, 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 and convince me that it's a 110 at Santa Anita, that equals a 110 at Santa Anita, which is the buyer mentality. That Belterra 110 is subject to the class of horses that are Belterra. So to develop the class of horse at a particular track, 
you have to see what's the best, uh, what is the, 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 how do I put it? What is the class of that track? What is the, the highest claiming level or allowance level horse? And how does that horse fit with the rest of the country? And what I found is, for example, and I'm using that example now, and I can tell you from my own adjustments by track, if I'm looking at Balterra, okay, uh, let's say Belmont to me is a minus three. I mean, zero means that it's the best horses in the world. Zero, there's no adjustment. Belmont is a minus three. Well, there's an 11 points difference between Belmont and Belterra Park. So in other words, that if a horse runs a 110 and gets an 89, let's say, figure, minus you, you have to take 14 points off for the class level. So that's a 75. Well, now that 75 is a lot more different than the, than the 84 that it would be a Belmont because of the level of classes, of class, horses and their class that are a Belterra Park. So... For to be able to build uh, a, a, a competent speed figure system, you have to believe and you have to understand what types of horses run at that track. And when you do and you can build and you can build that that pyramid, it it solves a lot of issues. When your horses come in from out of town and say, well, you had a big issue. You had a big figure at Belterra Park. Well, no, not really, because you didn't adjust it yet for the class of that level. So, um, and I know I probably am talking over the head of a lot of people, but that was the one way that we were able to bring that together. It's like, for example, Pete, they go 44 flat at Belterra. That doesn't mean it's a 44 flat at Santa Anita. It's not. Right, but you, you, you raise an issue that's that's a little bit more relevant now. Saratoga is a good example. Saratoga is a, a major ship in track. And so if if you watch social media, everyone's talking about, oh, yes, all these Churchill horses have done well the first few days. But, you know, is it that, you know, Churchill's feeding Saratoga effectively? Was it the race they came out of? Was it what you're talking about? You know, the figure in that specific circumstance suggested the horse was better than you would have thought going in. and The um, horses are not any better at Saratoga than they are at Churchill. They're not. Belmont New York horses are overrated in the figures. Way overrated in the figures. So what happens is they there is this almost this mentality, this arrogance mentality that just because you, you're at Saratoga, you're a better horse. No, you're not. And, 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 and I've taken into account that every year. Um, but it's just interesting how certain horses get better figures at those racetracks than they do at other racetracks. Because there's almost a bias. To, well, Saratoga, it's got to be good, right? Got to be good. So that's the problem. You, you, have to have, you have to have understand the class of horses. The class of horses also, the middle class of horses has disappeared. You have the lower class rung and you have the good horses. You don't have the middle class anymore. So now 
there's a huge difference in, in, in the top horses to the bottom horses. And when you get to the smaller tracks, those horses are far below the level of class that people think they are. Because, of the, because even though they have the same um, allowance conditions or things like that. So that's a huge issue that a lot of players don't know how to tackle. And then, you know what? A lot of guys do it recreationally. They don't want to do it, you know, to where they're working hard at it. They rely on us. Um, and they got families. They got jobs. You know, they can't do all of that. So, you know, um, those that want to put the work in or want to get information that's going to be useful to them, um, you know, I think we come really handy to them. I think that, I think that's a good point. You know, I, I get a lot of DMs from guys on Twitter that are new to the game that see some tickets I've posted with small investments that paid a lot, and and they're all you know, and some are asking for picks, which I, I I never really post picks. I'm very superstitious, but what I do is I'll get on the phone with a guy and just talk about my approach. But the first thing I always like to explain to them is, you know, be realistic about your approach. You know, if you if you want to put a lot of time in because you have a lot of time. If you want to be a next level capper, if you want to go after, you know, pools, pick five pools, pick six pools and play at that level. It, it takes a bankroll. It takes a lot of work, a lot of attention, a lot of unique methods. It takes looking at reports like yours. You know, it's, you got to treat it as a job. If you want to just have some fun, make a couple of bucks and, and turn your hobby into some marginal profitable venture, great. It, it's a completely different approach, but you have to really evaluate yourself. There's no one right way to do things. You have to figure out who you are, how advanced you are, what kind of time you want to put in and what your goals are realistically. You know, if you're a $2 better, it's not likely you're going to hit, you know, pick six with 12 horse fields in Hong Kong. Um, but there are opportunities for you to make money once you figure out really who you are when you do this self-assessment. Speaking of Hong Kong, you and our friend Tommy, uh, Tommy Macis play a lot of Hong Kong. Any uh, tips for the players on um, if who are interested in playing Hong Kong and how to approach it? Uh, I admire Tommy's approach at Hong Kong. He really understands the circuit. He watches a lot of replays. He puts a lot of time in. He looks at the veterinary reports. If you've never played there, to give you a little bit of an overview, it's extremely transparent. Every work, there's a video. Every veterinary record, there's a video. Anytime there's an incident when someone's got to go before the stewards, it tells you what the issues were. There's no information that's not available. There's no claiming races there. The way it works, it has class levels, much like the Greyhounds. When you win, you move up. Hong Kong, it's not quite as straightforward. You can run second a few times and move up. Um, but I, I find it fascinating. I can tell you I had I started about four months ago playing there. I lost for about two or three weeks, and then I had a $25,000 day, and I got really confident, and then I think I lost for the next four or five weeks. Uh, and it's incredible because you, you'll, you'll pick a, tri, a very narrow trifecta ticket, you'll hit it, and then you'll just swing and miss for seven races in a row. It's just it's the way it goes. Positioning is key. Uh, the fields at Shatin are 14 horses. The fields at Happy Valley are 12. And, you know, there's a couple of jockeys that do well, but there's some nights that, that they don't. And 
you know, too many people overbet those particular jockeys. It's, it's very challenging. What I like, though, I try to look at the bright side of things. And I can tell you, if I have a Hong Kong day, even if I'm wrong, it gets me so mentally sharp because you're, you're looking at 14-horse fields and there's not a lot of shortcuts like you might have with American racing where you're familiar with all of the trainers and all the jockeys and the tracks and the fractions. Um, it's not the same information that the DRF has, that you, so you lack that familiarity. So you've got to put that work in. Um, but I can tell you, I've, I've had days I've, I've lost at Hong Kong. And the next day I, I ran well in a tournament or I ran well at an American track. Um, they're on hiatus now for the summer. I think they come back. I want to say September. If you haven't played there, definitely look at it. The field sizes are enticing, but the pools are incredible. Um, if you're a multi-race player in the United States, you only have one option, really two. You have a pick three that most ADWs offer, which is the last three races of the day. Um, and then I use watch and wager. It's the only one I found that takes pick six bets. But they have a dollar thirty base bet pick six, and their consolation there is not like America where you get paid on five or six. Their consolation is like a place pick all. So uh, if you come first or second in all six races, you're getting paid. If you hit all six, you're getting the bigger payout. But um, I've learned a lot from Tommy. I've continued to educate myself, and I'm planning on really focusing on it come September. And if you haven't checked it out, definitely do it. Even if you lose a little bit, don't get frustrated. It takes a while, but you'll find yourself sharper with American races just by looking at it, putting the effort in, by watching races out there, and then delving into the Hong Kong Jockey Club website and everything they offer. Past performances are free. All the videos are free. And uh, I think if you give it a chance, you'll really like it. Now, you're going to have a busy summer. You also are – you have uh... – uh, is it one or two entries for the NHC? I've got one entry for the NHC. I've never really been a tournament guy, but at the beginning of the pandemic, work slowed for me. And I said, you know what? I'm sitting at home. Let me give it a shot. And I did an $18 uh, first level tournament that takes you to the bigger one. And I made the, the, the bigger one. And the bigger one was like 440 or 450 guys. I think they were just taking two or three of that group. So just I took a flyer. I had no idea how I would do, but I always found that if you play tournaments and you're forcing yourself to pick one horse, you're going to be better at your multi-race bets, which is where I really focus my time and my bankroll. And I ended up just having a crazy day and, and winning uh, the feeder with, with a big field. And so it's my first crack at an HC. I'm excited to go to Vegas. I used to live there. I haven't been there in about 18 months. And, um, you know, hope for the best. I'm going to put the time in and try to make some smart decisions and play aggressively. And uh, we'll see how it goes. Good luck, Pete. Thank you. And uh, you've got uh, some horses running up this week. So good luck with that. Thank and, you. And uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. We're going to bring you on, on on a regular probably once a month routine. Next month we'll uh, find out a little bit how you did at the NHC, your experience. We've also got a couple of other tournament players in this loop um, on these podcasts, so we'll get a chance to talk to them. Uh, and uh, we wish you the best of luck, and thanks for spending the, this uh, hour with us. Thanks, Bruno. Appreciate it. You can find Racing with Bruno at racingwithbruno.com and brunowiththeworks.com. 
BrunoWithTheWorks.com is our subscriber site. When you sign up for credits or an all-inclusive access, that's what you get. You get, you know, you get to go to the site, download your products. Um, Racing with Bruno is our online store. Um, give them a checkout and sign up for a newsletter so you can be updated when we have these off track and we update all the, um, all the products and uh, we get you emails to notify you. And, um, and also you get invites for our, uh, our weekly free zoom, which, uh, Pete has joined us a number of times. So thanks for listening and, um, have a great day.